0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. my great privilege to stand before you. Uh, No person who opens the Word of God to preach from it takes this uh, privilege and responsibility lightly. In Exodus 33, verse 18, we read, Moses said, please show me your glory. If we put ourselves in Moses' shoes, or maybe sandals. I don't know what his footgear was. But if we grasp what he's asking the Lord to do, we will see God's good character with good in its full meaning. And God's response will completely amaze us at the Lord's grace to undeserving sinners like me and like you. And these words from God echo. Throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible, there are at least eight other passages in the Old Testament that directly use the words of Exodus 34, 6, and 7, what the Lord proclaimed. Now I, I don't mean for you to, to write all these down, but in case you're listening on the, on the tape or, or in live stream, let me just read the, the, uh, the passages um, here, and if you, if you want them, I can give them to you. But it's Psalm 8615. Psalm 103 verse 8, Psalm 145 verse 8, Numbers 14:18, Joel 2:13, Nahum 1:3, Nehemiah 9:17, and Jonah 4:2. We did a Jonah series last summer here, and uh, Jonah, of course, was angry about this particular designation from God. But it even makes an appearance, this this declaration of God's glory makes an appearance in uh, the Gospel of John. We just read the passage, and I hope to make that connection uh, as we move through this passage. So the words of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, which are really the main focus of what I want to say today, are a declaration of the glory of God. They shine out from His character and lead us to an obsession to seek God and His glory as our life's central goal. And we're gonna see our message this morning uh, built from four points. Number one is why God's glory glory is central. Why God's glory is central. Number two, Moses' prayer for favor. Number three, Moses' prayer to see God's glory. And number four, Moses' response to glory. So why God's glory is central. To put it simply, we want to glorify God because God wants to glorify God. Let's pause to consider where we are in Exodus 33, if you will make your way there in your Bible. Uh, God has raised up Moses, if we start back at Exodus chapter 1, I'm not going to preach the whole thing, but just a summary here. God has raised up Moses to bring His chosen people, uh, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, and He's led them into the desert to prepare them for the coming conquest of the land He had promised to Abraham and his descendants. And after Israel impatiently falls into idolatry in the golden calf incident in the previous chapter... It looks for a moment like it's all over for them, but Moses intercedes for Israel. And so we now stand in chapter 33 at a moment of crisis. God says to Moses, to paraphrase the first few verses of, uh, of Exodus 33, take those people up to Canaan yourself. I'm not going to go with you. I'll send an angel to drive out the Canaanites, but My holiness is such that I'd have to destroy you all if I went up with you." And You know, Moses is a man who has a real relationship with God because he's not satisfied with that answer. The angel substitute is not an option for Moses. Israel needs God to be with them moses knows that god will receive the most glory if he makes himself known to moses and to israel and through them to the rest of the world israel was always designed to be a light to the nations now the prophet isaiah makes it clear that god wants himself and no one else to be glorified listen to what uh, god says to his people in isaiah 49 uh, sorry 48 verses 9 to 11 Uh, 48 9 says, for, now, "'For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off.'" And then skipping to verse 11, "'For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another.'" Sounds jealous, doesn't it? But when you're God, you can't do anything else. Now, uh, if you've heard of Jonathan Edwards, who lived from 1703 to 1758, he was a Massachusetts pastor, and many of us regard him as the greatest evangelical theologian of pre-independence America. And he wrote a book titled, The End For Which God Created the World. It was published after his death, but uh, it's an excellent work. Uh, It's some rough sledding because, of course, it's in 18th century English, but, you know, it's worth reading. I'd like to share just two statements from that uh, that book. The first one is this. Uh, Edward says, God's moral rectitude consists in his valuing the most valuable, namely himself. And then another statement from the same book, Delighting in His glory being known and enjoyed, God delights in Himself and makes Himself His end. So God's moral rectitude refers to His righteous character. For God to be righteous, He has to engage in what is good. And what is good is valuing Himself. Edwards points out the most important thing about God's character. God is the most valuable of all that exists, and everything else that exists depends on Him for its existence. So God must value Himself at the highest level. I don't mean must as simply a logical deduction, I mean must in the sense of obligation. The only thing God is truly obligated to do is to value Himself. He's not an egoist, though. It's just wrong for you and me to do that kind of thing. So God does everything He does to make Himself known. God made the universe and everything in it for the purpose of revealing how great He is. Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And His delight is for us, His creatures, to delight in Him. And when we accept that truth of God and receive Him, we glorify Him. So we glorify God because we were designed to do it. We want to glorify God because it's the very most important thing that God wants. God values His glory above all other possible objects of value. He loves himself. Now, the Apostle Paul says to Christians in Ephesians 5 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, God loves himself, as I've said. You might think that imitating God would mean that we should love ourselves. A second. You might think that imitating God meant that we're supposed to love ourselves, right? But no, the, the truth of, that, uh, of imitating God is completely different. As John Piper, a uh, contemporary theologian who is influenced by Jonathan Edwards points out, for a human being, to imitate God means to imitate God's love of God. You with me there? If you want to imitate God, then imitate God's love of God, meaning for us, We must love God the way God loves God. Therefore, we are to love God with all our hearts and to value Him above even ourselves, Even, even above our own lives. There are things that are more important than human life. That's the glory of God. Let's look to Moses' example then to see how we as God's people are designed to glorify God. God gives favor to His people so that they can gain more favor, and in getting that favor, they magnify magnify God. This brings me to Moses' prayer for favor, and we can pick it up in Exodus 33, verses 12 and 13. Now, we started our reading this morning at verse 18, but I want to back up to uh, verses 12 and 13 for a moment. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me, yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people." Did you notice how many times favor appears in those couple of verses? Uh, To find favor is an idiomatic Hebrew expression found all all over the place in the Bible. But Moses has in mind something very specific when he asks God for favor. He wants God's revelation of Himself. Moses finds himself in a crisis with a disobedient people in a desert. He does not remarkably ask for food or water or even shade (laughs) all of us would be asking for that wouldn't we moses asks god for and and keep in mind this is a guy who knows god is going to give him what he asks for what does he ask for god himself moses asks for god himself So why does Moses think it's important to ask for favor? Well, it's because Moses defines favor as relationship with God rather than success or prosperity or anything else that we could define as favor from a human point of view. Uh, Moses just doesn't see it that way. Notice he says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, this is verse 13, please show me now your ways that that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Because Moses is a humble believer. In fact, he's the most humble person. Numbers 12.3 says that he's the most humble person. Uh, Meek is the way the ESV puts it, but humble uh, uh, will work well enough. He knows that everything in life comes to us as a matter of grace. So he also believes it's important to ask for God's favor. And even more importantly in this context in Exodus, Moses knows it's essential that God grant grace to Israel because if he did not, God's name would be brought into disrepute among the very nations in which God wants to be glorified. This reasoning by Moses comes out in another passage more clearly on another occasion when Moses says this. This is Numbers. Uh, 14, verses 15 and 16, he says, Now, if you kill this people as one man, the nations who have heard of your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. Have you noticed the way God always approaches God on the basis of his word? What he said and what he's promised to do? I think we should, too. See, Moses always asks God to protect his own glory and to fulfill his promises. Now, though there's more to it, Moses' prayer is essentially this. Give me favor so that I will find favor in your sight. Pretty circular, right? He says, show me your ways. Moses intensely wants to understand God's ways. That is, he wants God to show him more of God so that his relationship with God will grow. Notice he wants this revelation, that I may know you. This word, know, appears several times in this passage, too. And each time, each one of them has to do with a relationship. God knows Moses by name. Moses knows God. This people knows you. Now, Moses asks for this revelation not for himself alone, as though he wanted to have it for himself. He's not someone who's going to withdraw to a monastery somewhere and just sit there with this. He says uh, at the end of uh, uh, verse uh, uh, 13, consider too that this nation is your people. You see, God has a purpose in rescuing Israel from Egyptian slavery and taking them back to the land He had promised to give Abraham. That purpose is to glorify Himself by showing Himself true to His promise of giving the land to Israel. You see, God loves His own glory and wants Israel to be the means of showing that glory to the whole world. So how does favor relate to glorifying God? Well, verse 14 says, And He said, meaning Yahweh, Yahweh said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, "'If your presence will not go with me, "'do not bring us up from here. "'For how shall it be known "'that I have found favor in your sight, "'I and your people?' "'Is it not in your going with us "'so that we are distinct, I and your people, "'from every other people on the face of the earth?' See, God says now He will go with Moses, with you, singular but now moses presses his case he says if your presence will not go do not bring us up from here moses response is specifically plural us moses wants the blessing of god's presence extended to the entire nation not just to moses if god distinguishes this nation of israel from all its neighbors by being specifically present among them god will be honored Notice what he says, so that we are distinct. That means that people will see that what God has done in accordance with His character, His glory, and His promises, and they should want it too. The more people who come to love God's glory because of what He's done, the more God is glorified. So how is God glorified, I wonder? God glorifies Himself by the favor of His presence with His people. Moses glorifies God by wanting Him and wanting to know Him. God shows Himself to be gracious and merciful by continuing to reveal Himself to them as He guides them through this next phase of His plan. Moses is saying, in essence, you've told me you're gracious to me, so show the world that's the truth by going up to the Promised Land with us. God gives favor to Moses and Israel by sparing them, remember what they did in chapter 32. This is treasonous idolatry. And He spares them, and thus the nations should recognize God has acted in accordance with His character and His promise. And this is the way you and I need to pray to God, that God would act to exalt Himself in response to our prayers. A lot of people like to talk about effective prayer and all the gimmicks for effective prayer. You want to talk about effective prayer? Pray that God will be glorified, and God will be glorified. God's going to answer that prayer. But, you know, we know that God's dealings with Israel became known in the world around them. Even 40 years or so after this particular exchange between Moses and God. A Canaanite woman in Jericho named Rahab said to the Israelite reconnaissance men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. And she even knows their names, she says what they are. You see, Rahab sees that God has started fulfilling His promises to bring Israel into the promised land. And God's continued, continued deliverance of Israel leads to Rahab and her family seeing a faithful God glorifying Himself. And this leads to her rescue and her family's rescue. Not just that, she's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So, she was rescued not just from the destruction of Jericho, but from eternal destruction. So we come now to uh, our third point, Moses' prayer to see God's glory. Now, back in verse 17 now of, of Exodus 33, uh, God reassures Moses, and now in the next verse where we started our reading this morning, Exodus thirty-three eighteen, 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Now, back in verse 13, we saw he asked, show me your ways. Show me your ways, show me your glory. See, Moses is depending upon God to cause him to understand, for him to see and to know God in a deeper way. And this is asking for more than what it may seem on the surface. See, the Old Testament links three important ideas. God's glory... God's holiness, and God's presence. Isaiah, in that famous throne room scene in heaven, sees the angels, and he hears them saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, 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 glory. And you say something three times, that's like, the highest way of expressing something, say, holy, 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 there it is. The the earth is full of His glory. So Moses is asked to see His glory, but then God replies in uh, 3320, Exodus 3320, You cannot see My face, for man shall not see Me and live. Now a Hebrew reader would have been seeing this word face all along in this passage. But because English doesn't use that word this way, it's been translated presence. Back in uh, verses 14 and 15 again, He, Yahweh, said, My presence will go with you, is my face will go with you, and I will give you rest. And He, Moses, said to Him, If your face, your presence, if your face will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. See how Moses' face, his glory, his holiness are all linked So, God's glory, His holiness, and His presence are all necessary for God to be glorified as He manifests Himself in history. See, God's presence is this key to people understanding who God is and how to relate to Him. Now, if you back up just a moment to Exodus 33, Uh, verses 7 to 11 for a moment. Uh, I'm not going to comment on everything that's here, but I think that this is instructive. Verse 7 begins, Now Moses used to take the tent, uh, his tent, really, take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, now watch what everyone's doing while Moses is taking the action of going out to be with God. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door, meaning his own tent door, and watch Moses until he had gone into his tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door, his own tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent." Look at Moses' burning desire to be in God's presence. He wants to meet with God so much that he takes his tent, which by the way is not the same thing as the tabernacle. That comes later. Moses takes his tent and he pitches it outside the camp. Even, did you notice it said far off from the camp? And almost everyone else except Joshua just watches and doesn't join in. Do you find that strange? The very presence of God is in your midst in the camp and you won't go out to to meet with Him? (laughs) Exodus 12, verse 37 sets the count of military-age men at 600,000 men. And if you add in women and children, we could get a group as large as two to three million people. Two million people here, and only two of them want to meet with God? God keeps answering Moses' requests, and, God, and Moses keeps taking extraordinary steps to get more of God. You see, you and I have a choice, too. We could be the one who looks a bit awkward by going outside the camp, or we could be one of the millions who just watch from the sidelines and won't bother ourselves with troubling to find out more about God. Hmm. Convicting, isn't it? Well, I'll move on. There's more to it. Go outside the camp. So what happens in answer to his prayer to see God's glory? Well, first of all, verse 19 says, And he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and and will proclaim before you my name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Notice, Moses asks in verse 18 for God's glory, and he receives in the reply, I'll show you my goodness. See how no one's ever seen God, right? We read that in in the prologue to the Gospel of John. How you know who God is, and how you see his glory is in his character. See, his goodness stands in parallel with my name, the Lord. I will proclaim before you my name, he says. But before that he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. His name is his reputation, his character. This, of course, in verse 19, Is a preview of what the lord will say more fully in the next chapter this statement emphasizes how god is completely free to be gracious and merciful i will be gracious upon whom i will be gracious and i will be merciful upon whom i will be merciful now how can god be merciful and gracious is it that he just looks the other way when his glory has been trampled on has been offended by us we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of god you notice that we it's not see paul doesn't say in romans 3 23 he doesn't say we fall short of the righteousness of god he said we fall short of the glory of god it's our sin that causes us to be separated from god and god can't just look the other way so while there that's okay don't worry about it. No. Is it? That's what, that's what bothers Paul in chapter 4 of Romans 2. But God just can't look the other way. There has to be some sacrifice that will provide a shield from the wrath of God. And Romans 3:25. Uh, the Apostle Paul puts it like this, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. Now, Paul uses this term propitiation. Just Let me just say, propitiation means uh, a sacrifice which causes God's just wrath to be satisfied. That's what propitiation means. Nobody uses the word propitiation anymore in everyday speech, right? Such a theological term. But what this means is we need to be saved from God Himself. We need to be saved from the wrath of God and Jesus Christ interposes Himself on our behalf and dies for our sins. And that's an invitation, of course, to all and anybody who might be listening who does not yet know God through Jesus Christ. Trust that what Jesus did on the cross is what it takes for you to be right with God. And you know, all of God's grace to everyone in history is possible because God was looking forward to what Jesus Christ would do do, and now has done in His sacrifice on the cross. You see, mercy withholds wrath, and grace gives blessing to undeserving sinners. We deserve God's wrath, God withholds it. We don't deserve anything that God gives us, but God gives it to us anyway, so He'll glorify Himself. And He's free to do that in what Jesus did on the cross. That's very important to notice. And the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament is pointing forward to what Jesus would do. Now, in Exodus 34, God proclaims before Moses His intentions for us as well. Let's go to Exodus 34, verses 5-7. to The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord. This is that. That tetragrammaton, as it's called, Y-H-W-H, it's often printed as in small caps, the Lord. So he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. And again, you repeat something, it's a matter of emphasis. It's like underlining. The Lord, a merciful and gracious God, or the merciful and gracious God. Uh, the way ESV says it, uh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, in these words, we encounter a full description of God's character, and those are the words that… I read you that list of passages, those eight passages that echo through the rest of the Old Testament. And so, Moses is to see the glory of God through words as God lays out His glory for Moses in this full description. And this way of seeing God's glory is fully open to us too, it's right here. It's in the Bible, we read it. So read the book, don't wait for the movie. Uh, You see, we we read this and we see God's glory, just the way the psalmist said, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law, Psalm 119, verse 18. So now we're going to focus on just a a few of the phrases here in Yahweh's declaration. Uh, We saw this already that he is gracious and merciful. Uh, When God was previewing this statement for Moses, he already said that. But let's skip to abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now this word steadfast love Uh, is a really interesting term, and it's just chock full of theological importance. Other English translations read loyal love, or simply love, the NIV has that, or faithfulness in the NASB. Uh, Loyal love was from the Net Bible. And you may have heard this word before, it's the Hebrew word chesed, Okay. <clears throat> now you might have to hold your hand up like this to, to say it correctly, so that you won't uh, disturb your neighbor. But uh, it's the Hebrew word Chesed, and it's such a rich and varied word that many scholars have written entire books on it. Uh, <clears throat> in, in fact, I, I, you know, you kind of look at the lists of dissertation topics. Uh, sometimes you, you kind of roll your eyes. Another graduate student wants to write on a Chesed. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, now, I'm just kind of saying that tongue-in-cheek, uh, but it, there's just so much to be said about this one word that that you could spend a, a lifetime just talking about this one word. It's a word that's often used in connection to God's covenants because it's always mentioned in terms of His being trustworthy to fulfill His promises. And uh, when when people do chesed they're being faithful to they're being loyal to who god is and oftentimes the covenants that he's made as well so so people can do chesed it's not quite the same thing as when god does it but uh, when when people are acting in loyalty to god that's what they're doing. And you know, in the Old Testament, this word chesed appears 33 times in connection with this next word, uh, truth, or let's see, uh, uh, what was it here in uh, 34.7, I'm sorry, 34.6, abounding in steadfast love, that's chesed, and faithfulness, okay, this word faithfulness in your ESV is a word that's often translated truth. And you get these two words, chesed and truth, and they they go together. You expect them to go together because they appear 33 times together. So this pair is expected, loving kindness and truth, or abounding in grace and truth. See, the word truth emphasizes the moral uprightness of God. And you remember we said the moral uprightness of God really consists in God being loyal to his character, in showing His glory. And this word truth is a quality of His character. And it flows nicely into the next verse uh, where God's justice is highlighted. But before we move to verse 7, I want to point out this connection. I started off by reading John uh, 1.14-18. You remember John 1.14, a lot of people have this memorized, this is a great verse to memorize. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us." That has the, the implication of pitching a tent, so there's some more of that going on, too. "...and we have seen His glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father." Now here's the, here's the connection, full of grace and truth. Those are our two terms that we just saw in Exodus 34.6. See, when the Hebrew Old Testament got translated into Greek starting around the third century BC, the Hebrew word chesed was often translated by the Greek word for grace. Not always, but very frequently. Sometimes uh, uh, translated, instead of the word grace, it's translated mercy. But John here says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And he's just talked about pitching a tent. he's just talked about glory so you see all the connections here john is actually echoing the text that we're studying here from exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 and john says that in jesus we see the glory of god so it's unmistakable here that jesus is the fulfillment of yahweh's word of revelation of his glory to moses Jesus is the embodiment of everything that God said He would do. Uh, And a lot of what He said He would do, He said through Moses, and here's Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm I'm the guy about who Moses wrote. Notice in Exodus 34-7 now that He keeps steadfast love, that's our word hesed again, for thousands. Thousands of what? Well, you see at the end of the verse 7, it says third and fourth generation. Uh, the word generation it actually isn't in the Hebrew text either. But the implication here is that it's thousands of generations. God keeps His loyal love, His chesed, His grace, His mercy for thousands of generations. Generations after generations of people who love Him and do His commandments who are in a right relationship with Him. People who put their trust in Jesus are the only people who can be in a right relationship with God. When someone refuses to come to God through Jesus Christ, their sins are not covered by this propitiation, by Jesus' sacrificial death. And they cannot have a personal relationship with Him, not in a saving way. God must and there it is again must obligation God obligates himself to be true to himself God must in the absol- in the interest of absolute truth bring down his wrath on the person whose sins are not forgiven Now in the 10 commandments now the 10 commandments do you know what those are Okay they're in this book They're actually before this passage, right? In Exodus chapter 20. Very good. And uh, Yahweh has already declared this. In Exodus 20 verse 6, he says that he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now that's interesting. If you twisted that you might think that it meant something like, um, well, if you keep God's commandments, He'll be faithful to you. He'll show mercy to you. But no amount of keeping His commandments can save anyone. Notice that Exodus 20 verse 6 says, "Those who love me, meaning those who accept God's character and His glory, those who value God above everything else. Deuteronomy 6:4 it says, "Hear, O Israel, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord is one. And you shall love Yahweh, the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. So keeping His commandments does not cause salvation, but obedience is an evidence of a right right relationship with God. So those who love me, those who are rightly related to me, They love me they love my glory they love my character and they do what i say the way john 17 puts it having a right relationship with god eternal life is knowing god so exodus 20 verse 6 says steadfast love to thousands of those who love me but now back in our text let's take a moment to say to look at forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin a lot of words for sin there and and that doesn't exhaust the hebrew vocabulary for uh, uh, for sin but putting three words together like this is moses way of taking in the whole sweep of human sinfulness i've got good news for you god forgives it all stop and let that sink in god forgives iniquity transgression, and sin.'" Wow, what a burden is lifted from us. And how can He do it? Again, I I always just have to keep coming back to the Apostle Paul never says that God does anything apart from what God does in Jesus Christ. So just keep coming back to Romans 3.23. Jesus is this propitiation. He is what stands between us and the wrath of God. So God forgives all of it because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. What great news. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said or thought or uh, whatever it is, God forgives it in Christ. Now, that's the good news. bad news is verse 7 continues. Even though god forgives human sin he still remains faithful to his own justice yahweh says he will by no means clear the guilty says verse 7. the word guilty here then refers to the unrepentant guilty remember we already read those who love him and keep his commandments but now consider the verse before that exodus 20 verse 5 he says to the third and fourth generation," now this is an important qualifier, "...of those who hate me." See, you can either love God or you can hate Him. And there's no in-between, okay? So if, uh, you either love God or you don't. So a yes-no thing. And if you don't love God, you hate Him. So when God says in Exodus 34-7 that He will not let the guilty go unpunished, He means in the context of Exodus, those who hate me. I'm not just reading my theology in here, right? I'm I'm, I'm showing you this text in context. That is, those who reject God's glory and who want nothing to do with Him are showing by rejecting His glory that they hate Him. So God will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now don't get the wrong idea here about the children and the children's children and their sin. Uh, There's this strange thing going around about generational curses uh, and I don't think this text or any text that gets cited for it can really bear out that idea. Listen to what God says when he sets out in this is an inviolable principle of justice in the law when he says this deuteronomy 24 verse 16 fathers shall not be put to death because of their children nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers each one shall be put to death for his own sin now that's t- uh, granted deuteronomy 24 is talking about the administration of human justice But if that's the principle of the administration of human justice, then you know that that's the way God operates as well. So when he talks about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children, children's children, the third and fourth generation, he's not talking about things that people often talk about, uh, these uh, curses that run through families, no the third and fourth generation is a way of god talking about how he is slow to anger. Did you notice how he is slow to anger? And three and four generations is a long time. He may wait three or four generations before dealing with sin decisively in history. But people who continue in the sin in sin the way their ancestors did will bear the consequences of their own sin. Now, this concept is going to come up in, uh, uh, hopefully at some point, you're going to talk about this. In Genesis 15:16. Uh, God says to, to Abraham, the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And he mentions third and fourth generation there. I think what God has specifically in mind when he declares this, is he's talking about the Canaanite people who he's going to wipe out as, as he brings... Uh, Judgment on them. But God mercifully withholds judgment to allow people the time to repent. Make no mistake, God will bring about His justice in due time. No one gets away with anything. So this is not a generational curse, but it's an expression of God's slowness to anger. But He won't allow His glory to be insulted forever. There's a time limit on human sinfulness, which is rapidly running out. One day, it's gonna happen. just like it happened with the flood. Okay, so we've talked about why glory is important. We've talked about Moses' uh, prayer for favor, We've talked about Moses' prayer to see the glory of God, so favor is is, uh, specified in the revelation of the glory of God. Now let's talk about Moses' response to glory. This revelation of God's marvelous glory, this full description of who God is, needs a response, and we see Moses as a pattern for us. To put it simply, the proper response to God's revelation of Himself, proper response to God's glory is worship. The Apostle Paul makes this point too. Ephesians 1.6 says that everything God has done for us in Christ is, to quote Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of His glorious grace which he, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You could even say, that his glory is his grace in that particular verse. That is, this grace he has poured out on us is his glory revealed to and in us. And so uh, in Exodus 33, 34, uh, verse 8, it says And Moses hurried to bow down, sorry, and Moses hurried to bow low toward the ground and worship. Then he said, if in any way I have found favor in your sight, Lord, please may the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our wrongdoing and our sin, and take us as your own possession. So the response to glory is this. Moses' reaction to this revelation is, I've got four words to describe it here reverent, humble, confident, and repentant. First of all, it's reverent. He worshiped. This is the proper response to the glory of God. He bowed down. Now, it's humble as well. Moses recognizes that God really owes us nothing. Do you notice how he says He's, God's already told him, oh, You found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. But yet, Moses still, in his worship, says, If I've found favor in any way. See, God owes us nothing. And even though God knows him by name, God, Moses does not act as though he were entitled to anything. Now, interestingly enough, in the midst of this humility, we also have his response is confident. Those go together, actually. When you know the truth, you can stand confidently before a holy God, knowing that you have been forgiven your iniquity, transgression, and sin. This confidence he has is asking in confidence that God loves his glory and wants to magnify it. He asks for God to glorify himself by fulfilling his promise to use them as a special people to represent him in the world. Did you notice how he said that? Uh, take us for your inheritance or your special possession. So he wants to see God fulfill his promise to use Israel as his representatives in the world. And there's one more thing about Moses' reaction. It's repentant. Do you notice that? Once we see how great God's glory is, and how far we have fallen from it, we see our need to ask His favor to cleanse us. He says, uh, pardon our iniquity and our sin. So, how does all of this change how we respond to God's glory? Well, as we follow Moses' example, a few points in our prayer and thought life can make a start. First of all, ask to have more of God. Ask to have more of God to see his glory in his word and to have his actions glorify himself in the world. You can have confidence that God's going to answer that prayer. Secondly, pursue fully knowing God, even if it means taking the risk of going outside the camp. The rest of the world may misunderstand you or ridicule you, but those who seek God's glory know that it's a privilege to suffer reproach for His honor." Read Hebrews 13, verses 12 and 13, where the the author of Hebrews invites us to go outside the camp. Because God gets the glory, we get the reward, and God's glorified in us receiving the reward. Now, thirdly, view God's favor in a new way. Don't think of it as just prosperity or success for whatever endeavor you want. God's favor is giving us Himself so that we can know Him more and experience the favor of knowing Him. All of this is so that we can give Him the credit for what He's done. It's a, it's, a, 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 it's a circular system. God gives us favor, we glorify Him. He gives us more favor, we glorify Him. And God is maximizing His glory in the world. And fourthly, and lastly, take confidence in your prayer. This is assuming, of course, you're rightly related to Him, that you've come to, to faith in Christ, But God answers Moses' prayers because they're for His glory. God will always honor prayers for His glory and prayers to see His glory. Ask God to display Himself and His greatness, and then stand back and watch Him act. What a marvelous thing that God would reveal Himself to us in His Word.